Hey, everybody. We want to thank you all who have supported the show. And anybody who is interested in supporting the show can check us out on Patreon. Patreon.com slash xchateau, or you can find the link on xchateau.com. We have over 100 episodes, and by becoming a patron, you can get access to 100-plus episodes. Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights. With your hosts, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. Today we're going to be talking about the Hong Kong wine market. And our guests are Polly Aylwin Foster and Ian Ford, the founding partners of Nimbility Asia. Now, Ian, you gave us an introduction in the Main China episodes that we did with you, but we'd love to get a little brief introduction from Polly to understand her background in wine and how she became an expert in the Hong Kong wine market. Oh, thank you very much. So I moved to Hong Kong back in 2011 with absolutely no experience in the wine market at all. But I was lucky enough to join a really well-established wine importer doing their business development and spent the next four or five years really kind of getting to grips with the wine market and studying all my WSET, you know, level three, did my diploma. And then in 2014, I joined a little French winery and became their commercial director for the APAC region. So I was traveling all around Asia and focusing, of course, on Hong Kong. And then in 2018, I was lucky enough to found Nimbility with Ian and Francesca Martin, where we help brands to develop and grow across the APAC markets. Our head office is in Hong Kong, so Hong Kong is very much a a big focus for Nimbility. So we'd love to do a deep dive into the Hong Kong market, which has exploded as the trading hub for wine for almost all of Asia over the last 10 to 20 years. We're curious on how it set itself up and really became that wine trading hub for the Asian market? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. And I know actually that the actual question about whether the the wine trading hub and what that looks like is definitely something Ian and I would love to discuss. But I think it obviously primarily goes back to 2008 when all wine duties were taken away. So Hong Kong became a duty-free market for anything under 30% alcohol, which obviously set it up as a fantastic place for storing wine and trading wine. And that is primarily where the growth has come from. I mean, just to give you a couple of examples, for instance, in 2008, there were 310 registered importers in the Hong Kong market. In 2021, that went up to 790. In the same kind of way, the number of specialist retailers was only 140 shops in 2008. And in 2021, that was 470, which for a territory of just 7 million people is is quite a significant increase. How prevalent is wine in daily culture in Hong Kong? You know, how big is the market of what is consumed in Hong Kong itself? There's a very clear split in terms of that, I would say, into almost kind of three categories. You obviously have the expatriate market. Hong Kong is a big expatriate market. There's about 500,000 expats in, in Hong Kong of a population of just over 7 million. Then you have the kind of general indigenous population. And then you also have this, this other kind of segment of the market, which I think we can only describe as the kind of should we say that the wealthy Hong Kongers, you might hear them being called the tycoons, because there's a large part of the wine market which kind of focuses around there. So with the international expats, you have the very much the kind of international on trade, the five star hotels, tourists would come into that category as well. And that's a kind of very daily drinking market. Then the tycoon side of things is really interesting because that's the real fine wine consumption. And where a lot of what we'll be talking about today, we see see the kind of where a lot of the value comes into the market. And then you have the more kind of 
indigenous local population where home wine consumption is still very much not part of the daily culture. And I'm assuming that that, that's a very clear segmentation between that tycoon market and the average consumer. That's how you delineate that market into those two big segments? Yeah, I think, I mean, it's, it's obviously not completely clear cut, but there is, I think it's, it's very important to segment it because your average Hong Konger, you know, the, the, the main places they're going to be buying wine from will be the supermarkets where there's a duopoly here. So there's only kind of two major players in the market. And then, you know, for the more interested consumers, maybe specialist retail. Online is very, very small in Hong Kong, even since the pandemic, it's less than 7% of the market. And then the tycoon segment's really important because the value of wine is so is going to be at such a big distinction. So maybe we could dial into that total value that is the Hong Kong market on an annual basis. How, how big is that and what number of bottles would that equate to? So in 2021, there was about 4.3 million nine liter cases imported into Hong Kong. It's interesting because obviously we've all been affected by the pandemic over, over the last few years. And that's actually about a 10% increase on 2019 figures. There was obviously a big drop in, in 2020. And this is still forecasted to, to grow by kind of 5 or 6% over the next few years. That seems like a lot of wine for the population of Hong Kong. Well, it is. And that's, that's why it's a really interesting discussion point. And one of the things that Ian and I really wanted to discuss today, because even the HKTDC <laughs> has some quite interesting figures about this and how they write it is really interesting. So of that 4.3 million cases, 26% of that is officially re-exported. So using Hong Kong as that kind of wine hub that we described. So it's imported here and then re-exported probably primarily to China, but also around the region. But then 74% is, and this is a direct quote, a combination of conveyed out of Hong Kong by individuals leaving the territory, then storage of wine, and then local consumption. Can you parse what that means exactly? Because that seems like those words were chosen very specifically (laughs) to be... It was a very careful selection of words that was a direct quote. But what we're essentially, what it's saying is, is that obviously Hong Kong shares a border with the mainland. And the taxes and the duties of going into China, you know, totals nearly 50% once it's all added together, whereas obviously Hong Kong is is zero. And you are allowed to take two bottles of wine per person over the border without having to pay tax. And there is a whole, shall we say, segment of the market that does that, that where there are people who are storing their wines in, in Hong Kong, but then will bring it over to drink in the mainland. And they bring it over with like a thousand people with them, two bottles at a time. Well, exactly. I mean, I think Ian's got quite a good uh, anecdote about that. Yeah, so it's it's a really interesting question. The whole idea of the, the amount of volume and value that goes into Hong Kong and then what stays in Hong Kong and what leaves Hong Kong. And of what leaves Hong Kong, how does it leave Hong Kong? And so what I witnessed when I first came to the region in 1995-96, and it's been happening ever since then is a is a massive hand carry enterprise that takes place at the at the basically the Hong Kong Shenzhen border where you have people that will carry two bottles of wine over the border obviously usually very high value wine or cognac and drop it off on the other side and go back across get another two bottles carry another two bottles across and they might you know they'll do that dozens of times in a day with a, with an unlimited multiple entry visa 
And, and it effectively is, it, it sounds like, well, you know, how many bottles could you get across, you know, hand carrying two bottles at a time, but the numbers are actually pretty significant. And when you're talking about bottles of Petrus or Chateau Lafitte or fine Burgundy or, you know, Exo Cognac, the value of that is significant. It's fascinating to me when the HKTDC identifies that of the 75% that isn't officially re-exported, the idea that some portion of it is conveyed outside of Hong Kong by individuals hand carrying it. Well, I, I mean, it seems to me that's a big part of what they're talking about. The obvious challenge there is how much is it? What, what is the actual number? And uh, there's an, it's, it's just impossible to know exactly what that number is, but it, it is a significant operation. It isn't just somebody saying, oh, I've, I've got some wine in Hong Kong and every once in a while I go down there, I grab a couple of bottles and I come back. There are actual whole operations that effectively bring significant volumes of fine wines across the southern border. This this whole like wine mule coyote runners, whatever we want to call them, are is essentially a whole separate service that is being provided to these collectors. Well, the, the, it's not even necessarily service for a collector. The wines get consolidated on the mainland China side, repacked into shipping cases, and put back into commercial distribution. So. It's not even like Mr. Wong in Shanghai wants to get some of his bottles of Petrus out of his Hong Kong storage, so somebody kind of mules it across for him. It's it's actually a commercial enterprise where you know these these products are coming across the border in significant volumes. So yeah, I, I just found it fascinating that HKTDC would refer to this in their in their description of the amount of volume that's going in and out of Hong Kong as as one of the significant segments of where these volumes are going. Right, that there's local storage facilities which comprise a, a significant amount, obviously because there's no tax in Hong Kong. There's local consumption, but but there's also this very particular description of wines conveyed out of the territory by individuals hand carry. And does the report lump them together because they just don't know how many is out, and so they they know how much was exported, and then. They're like, and then the rest must be all these other things. Right. So they know how much is officially exported because that goes through excise. But the rest of it that stays in Hong Kong, they have no way to track what is going out of the territory hand carry, what is being consumed by actual Hong Kong consumers. And you could probably get a handle on what is the the size and shape of the amount of wine being stored in Hong Kong. I don't have those numbers myself. There are several operators that 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 operate, you know, very professional storage facilities for wine. And there are a lot of people taking advantage of those facilities. So that maybe that you could get a handle on. But yeah, they lump them all together because you're right. They just don't have the numbers exactly. So for the what sounds like might be a relatively small amount of wine that's actually consumed in Hong Kong, where is that consumed? Is that mostly in restaurants and bars or is that mostly at home? It's going to be mostly in restaurants and bars. Hong Kong has a very strong culture of eating out. You know, for, for a lot of people, it's, it's not even feasible to eat at home. The, the kind of facilities are, are not set up for kind of big home cooking. I don't have the numbers to hand, but the number of restaurants per capita is, is very high. And so, yeah, that is where the, the wine consumption is going to be. Now, historically, kind of pre-pandemic, a very large proportion of that was five-star hotels, the international on-trade, large restaurant groups which were very much targeting both the expatriate community and, you know, middle-class Hong Kongers. What we've seen happen over the last couple of years, and which seems to be the direction that the importers are focusing on now, is that there seems to be, because I'm not sure how 
aware everyone is is what the current restrictions are in Hong Kong. Do we want to talk about that at all? Because I know obviously in the States, things are almost kind of back to um, inverted commas normal. But here in Hong Kong, we still essentially have closed borders. Pre-pandemic, Hong Kong had over 55 million tourists per year coming into Hong Kong. That number at the moment is virtually zero because we're still subject to seven days compulsory hotel quarantine, which is paid for by the people coming over. So there is no tourism market here at the moment. So as a result, there is no five-star hotel business apart from a few who've kind of tried to do kind of the daycation packages and things like that. But so previously, that was obviously a huge place for, for drinking wine and that just doesn't even exist anymore. There's been a huge turnover of bars and restaurants because we've had nearly two years in total of lockdowns and restrictions where people have just not been able to survive. And so restaurants have closed, but more have now reopened. And so that is where the, the wine drinking now is, is being focused is around the more kind of the kind of more casual dining that's opening up. And all the importers are really heavily trying to divert their sales force to selling into those bars and restaurants rather than the kind of previous kind of international ones, because that's where they see the the future of Hong Kong wine. You know, whether it's in the fine dining or maybe now in the casual dining, one of my friends who lives in Hong Kong used to always joke that we drink the good stuff in Hong Kong and Americans buy like the crappy wine of the best producers. And we only buy the like the Grand Cru of the best producers, <laughs> which I think probably refers to your tycoon market. Yeah. <laughs> when you look at that in Hong Kong, is it most of the small percentage being drunk there, the really high end stuff from the tycoons or is it is it other types of wines? No, absolutely. That that is that is huge. And I mean, you can you can even see that in terms of the stats of kind of country of origin. Officially, France is 65% coming into Hong Kong with 10% coming from the UK. Now, obviously, the UK is also going to primarily be from the merchants. So we're talking over 70% French wine going into Hong Kong. But if you're looking at the bars and restaurants and the wine list there, they're much more varied than that. It's not very French focused. So a lot of that French wine is being consumed, as we, as we said. And you have this incredible culture here of private kitchens, kind of wine clubs, fine dining, the whole kind of private room dining is is huge here. And that is where those kind of more expensive bottles of wine are being drunk. And so are there any particular regions or varieties that are popular with the fine dining crowd in Hong Kong? Well, historically, it was always Bordeaux, but Burgundy, there's been a, yeah, a huge growth in Burgundy over the last kind of five years. I think we're also, from kind of talking to, to importers, there's definitely been more of a demand for the more kind of iconic American wines as well. But yeah, I mean, Bordeaux and Burgundy is is the significant ones. How important are wines that are labeled as organic or biodynamic or sustainable or even clean to the consumers in Hong Kong? I would love to say that it is important, but unfortunately, we are definitely behind the trends here. It's quite interesting talking to the to the supermarkets because they are obviously all beginning to be kind of targeted on their, well, internally, they're all looking at kind of sustainability and their supply chain. But from a consumer perspective, we don't see a demand for those wines. There's definitely an interest amongst wine consumers in general. But for the kind of average consumer, if you go into any of the, the supermarkets in, in Hong Kong, there's very little option on the kind of organic biodynamic side of things. I know this is hard to do because the mainland China market is very diverse. But if you had to like differentiate the Hong Kong consumer versus the mainland China consumer, how would you summarize the differences or similarities between those two groups? So the Hong Kong consumer versus the mainland consumer, 
Rob, you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the mainland, the idea of a mainland consumer is, is, a, is a myth. I mean, it's a very diverse consumer base here in China. And a lot of what you see in Hong Kong is now mirrored in, in China with the, you know, the ultra wealthy collecting and having a seller. And the only big difference here is that it's quite expensive to bring those wines into Shanghai because you have to pay 48.5% import duties and taxes on wines that are already, you know, pretty expensive. So we would be remiss to to not recognize the influence that British wine culture had on Hong Kong over many decades. I mean that that's that there's an indelible imprint on the market that came as a result of of the British influence in Hong Kong. You know, Britain, London, the London wine scene, the the merchants, I mean it's one of the most mature wine markets on planet Earth, possibly the most. Historically, when you look at, at wine markets all around the world, I mean, England in the UK is, is is a very mature market. And a lot of that found its way to Hong Kong and created a wine culture in Hong Kong that really is quite unique. It's its own culture. It's, it's, not, it's not a mirror image of the UK, but there was a lot of influence there. And obviously, trading houses, merchants all opened, not all, but many of them opened up outfits in Hong Kong to trade wine. That was a big stimulus of, of the fine wine market in Hong Kong. And then you throw the elimination of import duties and taxes in 2008. So I guess I would still say to this day that the average fine wine consumer in Hong Kong is still slightly more advanced on their wine journey than the average mainland fine wine buyer, right? You sort of, you get on this path of exploring wines and you start to develop your tastes and preferences and so forth and so on. And you kind of go on this journey, right? And I think on average, the Hong Kong consumers are further down the path on that journey just because they started earlier collectively as a market, right? I mean, going back to the 60s and the 70s, whereas, you know, the China wine, the mainland China wine market really only started to emerge in the late 90s. Hard to say specifically just this consumer versus that consumer, but I, I think the market context in those ways is quite different. Follow up question then Is it safe to say that you could look at the Hong Kong? collector market or tycoon market as an indicator of where the similar high-end consumers of China will be in 12 to 18 months? Are they like a, a trend ahead? Is it like a microcosm to, to be able to get a viewpoint of where we think mainland will be going? Or are they just totally separate markets? I used to think that, and I think it used to be true. And I think for many years, Hong Kong was a sort of showcase market and out in front, and a lot of eyes were on Hong Kong to follow trends and so on. But nowadays, you know, I go to a city like Chengdu, and Chengdu is off on its own course. I mean, there that city is amazing, and it, you know, the economy there is just going bonkers, and wine consumers there are doing their own thing. So that I think has decoupled mainland China from Hong Kong in terms of the old role that I I do believe Hong Kong used to play, which was as a showcase. It still has a bit of that, right? It does that still exists, and I think within the professional trade, you still see a lot of F and B professionals come out of Hong Kong and maybe they go to Shanghai as a sommelier or they, they you know they go around the region so the the role of Hong Kong as a culinary center and as an F&B center in in the region is still very important but i think places again i, I refer to Chengdu and and Shanghai for that matter i think are really marching to their own tune more and more now when it comes to what they're interested in you know we've we discussed previously the the emergent energy around natural wines in, in little pockets around China, that really has nothing to do with Hong Kong, for example. So yeah, I mean, I think the auctions in Hong Kong are still quite influential. 
in the sense that these extravagant auctions take place in Hong Kong and they attract a lot of attention and people see these massive prices being paid for you know very rare wines. Those auctions aren't really happening in China, not really. I think for regulatory reasons and tax reasons and and just historical reasons. So those auctions I think are still still provide a, a sort of halo effect for Burgundy and Bordeaux and that sense of like these are the ultra valuable ultra luxury wines. And that that still emanates out of the the Hong Kong auction market pretty pretty severely. So can all those records can help build like the brand in the Chinese mainland Chinese collectors really mindset. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you never, you never see auctions, for example, of, of Argentine wines or Chilean wines or, or really even to an extent, California wines at the kind of prices and value and prestige and all of that goes with the auction houses. It does create a halo effect for Burgundy and Bordeaux and maybe champagne and, and even port a little bit that you don't get with, with other regions, maybe Italy to a certain extent. So I think those auctions are, are still creating that aura, that halo for those categories. And it's very visible to mainland buyers and mainland buyers are participating in those auctions. So that, that still has a big effect. And so related to that, we talked about how getting rid of the taxes on wine in 2008, I believe, made Hong Kong explode as a trading hub. How much of the wine trade in Hong Kong is your best estimate of the non-exported wines are for investment and trading versus actual consumption? Yeah, I mean, I probably can answer that as well, but I think it's a hard number to put a finger on. Again, I think if we could get some stats on how much wine is being stored long term in Hong Kong, that would give us a pretty good indication, I think, of what's being bought for, for long-term cellaring and, and investment as opposed to regular consumption. But I, I would go back to the idea, if I may, I would go back to the idea of Hong Kong as a trading hub, because I, I think it's a very interesting discussion point and very, very interesting for, for the wine trade to get a better understanding of. I think the original intention was that Hong Kong would become a massive storage and redistribution hub for Asia, for wine. So producers would ship wines to Hong Kong. They could be stored here duty-free, and then they could be parceled off and sold around to different regional countries like China, of course, but also possibly Malaysia, Vietnam, even Japan, possibly Thailand, Indonesia. The problem with that, and particularly when it comes to mainland China, well, there's a couple of problems, but one big one is just the basic economics of it. If I ship wine to Hong Kong, I offload it, I put it in a warehouse, I leave it there for six months, I take a parcel, I reload it on a ship, and I ship it up to Shanghai, or I put it on a truck and I put it across the border to Shenzhen. I've now just added all of that cost, okay, into the cost of the wine that I'm now bringing into China, right? The cost of shipping to Hong Kong, offloading, loading, devanning, all of that warehousing. And Hong Kong real estate is expensive. Warehousing in Hong Kong is, is not that affordable. And then when I bring it to China, I have to still have to pay 48.5% import duties and taxes. And I have to pay that on the landed cost, which means I have to take all of that extra shipping and warehousing cost to Hong Kong, and I have to pay 48.5% again on top of that. So as an ex-importer in China with Summergate, I never even contemplated this. It was completely economically non-viable. I would just ship directly to Shanghai. Why would I ship it to Hong Kong, do all of that, and then ship it into China? It never made any sense economically. You might 
have a little bit of that happening on the fringe. In other words, I might I might have a brand where I'm operating in both Hong Kong and mainland China. I run out of stock in mainland. Okay, I can bring a couple of hundred cases in from Hong Kong in a pinch. But I would never base a business model around Hong Kong as a hub to redistribute into mainland China. So it's a flaw in the system that I, I, I never understood how it was ever meant to become that massive redistribution hub. And sorry to be long-winded in this answer, but the other big problem is back label. So you need different back labels for Southeast Asia as you need for China. Hong Kong's very agnostic. Hong Kong, you can you don't need a back label. But the problem is then you have to relabel with a Chinese back label to put it into China, or alternatively, you need to relabel it with the Malaysia back label to put it into Malaysia. And all of that restickering and all of that work has to be done in Hong Kong in a warehouse with Hong Kong labor. And again, it just ratchets up the inefficiency and the cost of all of that. So the whole idea of Hong Kong as a trading hub, I always thought was it's an interesting exercise to try to determine, well, how does that actually work? Well, and is it redistribution hub as you just described, or was the idea more like investment and trading? So a storing fine wine for 10 years, not six months. And then you're maybe trading on some platform and it doesn't actually move from Hong Kong or then ships very slowly to whoever bought it in Singapore, Japan or wherever. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a huge part of it. And just the sheer the sheer number of kind of wine storage available here and the wine clubs and yeah, all of that side of things is, yeah, that is absolutely happening. But once again, I guess the amount that's being shipped out is in that 26% mm. that we're seeing. That is still included in that stat rather than actually being drunk within Hong Kong. And the people who buy and store wine for investment in Hong Kong, are these people mostly based in Hong Kong or are they based in other countries? A lot of them are going to be based in other countries. I mean, Ian, I know you can you can talk quite significantly about kind of the, the amount yep. of people who are based in China. Not just personally. I, I personally have any number of friends who, who do this, but, but I also know that it's quite a significant phenomenon that the mainland buyers will buy a lot of Bordeaux and Burgundy either on Premier or off the merchants. And I guess it acts a little bit like London bond. It's an equivalent of a, a bonded zone. You can buy wine on Premier, whether that's fine Bordeaux. And you know, two years later, the product becomes available. You ship it to Hong Kong, you put it in a storage facility and you know, I, I know any number of people, you know, well, wealthy Chinese who, who live in, in mainland China, Guangdong or Shanghai or Beijing who do exactly that. They want to buy on Premier. They want to invest in fine wines. Whether or not they're going to resell it or they're going to drink it at some point, is I don't think they even know necessarily. But they want to get into the game. They want to buy on Premier. They love the great chateau houses. And Hong Kong's a great place to put it. Uh, the storage facility is super professional, very transparent. You've got great access whenever you go to Hong Kong to go in and get some of your wines out. I think that's that's a significant factor. I mean, it's interesting, though, what's happened now with pandemic travel restrictions is, you know, all of these things that we've talked about, about hand carrying product from Hong Kong back into China. Now, you, you have to spend seven days in quarantine on both sides. So, you know, you, that's completely evaporated, right? It's, it's, it's no longer viable in the current circumstances. And so are you saying that it's mostly mainland Chinese and people in Hong Kong? Are there not a large portion of people from other countries? I think there may be. I, I, it's hard for me to put a finger on, you know, the extent to which Malaysians or Indonesians or, you know, I don't, 
think it's likely you'd see many Japanese doing that. It would be hard for me to put a finger on what that looks like. My suspicion is it's primarily wealthy mainland Chinese that want to have their wines in Hong Kong, which is very proximate to where they live. And the facilities there are great and all of that. So it's hard for me to answer that, whether you have Vietnamese, wealthy Vietnamese, Indonesians, Malaysians that are taking advantage, or even Singaporeans. I mean, it's hard for me to put a finger on what that number would look like. Polly, you're living in Hong Kong. It's pretty hot. Certainly now in summer and all year round, like wine needs to be stored relatively coolly and takes up a fair amount of space. And Hong Kong doesn't have a lot of space. How did it make sense to like do this in Hong Kong. Uh, China has so much property that could be in, you know, so much land that could be cooler other places with more land to store. Why Hong Kong? It's a great point. And I think there are a few nuances to that. But I think one of the, the things about that is the fact that it has still succeeded, despite the fact that in Hong Kong, the actual cost of storing your wine is not insignificant. You know, we were all seeing the huge global rise in energy prices. And that is also happening here in Hong Kong. And the, the cost of the air conditioning that you need to put your wine into is not insignificant. And so it is an interesting phenomenon that the fact that despite all of that, they still have managed to make it such a competitive wine hub for the region. And I guess that's to do with the fact that the only other kind of options within the Asia Pacific region are your bonded warehouses in Singapore, outside China, which just in themselves, because of the process of going in and out of bond, comes with extra costs. Do you have a sense of how expensive the cost of store is in Hong Kong relative to the other trading hubs of the world like London or in Bordeaux? Ooh, I would not be able to put a number to that right now. I store wine in Hong Kong myself. And it's my understanding, I, I, I never really contemplated doing it in New York or London. But my understanding is that it's, it's actually more affordable than London bond is my understanding. You have to remember that in Hong Kong, you have the new territory. So you have, it's not, it's not like you're trying to store wine on a little 10 square meter plot in central and on Hong Kong Island, right? I mean, you've got, you've got the new territories. I mean, you, you have a fairly significant swath of land that is, you know, more sensible, I think, for wine storage. And you have incredible logistics operations in Hong Kong. I mean, it's, there's so much historically, the, the port of Hong Kong, I mean, there's so much going in and out. So, you know, you, you have a really substantial logistics operation there, very cutting edge. One other thing I wanted to mention just for your listeners about Hong Kong and Hong Kong's role in the region is cross-border e-commerce into China, which is a very interesting other segment and role that Hong Kong plays and can play, again, because of its duty-free status. So China has established what's called cross-border e-commerce mechanism for Chinese consumers to buy imported products from offshore at favorable tax rates. So for wine, for example, you pay much less of that 48.5% import duty and tax if you buy via a, an official cross-border e-commerce platform. And Tmall has them, JD.com has them, they're readily available. And Hong Kong is a, is is actually become quite a good location where Alibaba has got themselves set up, for example, to be the cross-border e-commerce distribution center for mainland China. So in other words, if I buy two bottles of Burgundy through cross-border e-commerce, it's not coming from Burgundy, it's coming from Hong Kong, but it's still coming in with the preferred duty rates and, and, and you know lower cost. And there are limitations to how much a single consumer can buy in a year. There are limitations per transaction. So it's not just 
open season, you can buy as much as you want unlimited, but it's not insignificant. It takes away some of the, the, the burden of those high import duties and taxes in China. And it opens up a whole other array of products that can be available to the Chinese consumer coming out of the, the these Hong Kong cross-border e-commerce distribution centers. Based on that, in terms of the wine that is purchased from Hong Kong, I'm curious on where people are buying it. You mentioned, obviously, you, we talked about the auctions a little bit earlier, but then you mentioned retail in Hong Kong, there's a duopoly. And now you're mentioning the cross-border. Like, So how would you break down those channels? Well, so the cross-border e-commerce is all coming into mainland. So those are mainland buyers that are taking advantage of the online cross-border e-commerce platforms to buy imported. It, they, it's not just wine. It's, it's everything, right? I mean, they're buying vitamins and honey and you know all this kind of stuff. So that's mainland China. Polly could probably give you a good description though of the retail environment in Hong Kong and that duopoly that she mentioned earlier. Yeah, absolutely. And actually it also made me think of something which is quite an interesting phenomenon that's happening in Hong Kong at the moment. This is obviously not going to necessarily be sustainable, but it's just quite an interesting fact that obviously for the last three years, no one in Hong Kong has been able to, to travel. Previously, a, a lot of people obviously did a lot of regional business travel around Hong Kong and obviously traveling around the world. And as people do, they collect air miles. Now, those air miles have become defunct over the last few years and they're obviously going to run out. And one of the way that the, the local carrier has been promoting to spend those is through their online wine club. Just as an anecdote, I know one importer who did nearly a million US dollars worth of sales in the last 12 months through that channel, which, as I said, is not going to be a long-term potential sales channel, but it's just quite interesting because they, they obviously people can buy other things. They don't have to buy wine. They, they can buy electronics. They can buy vacations at, at hotels. Like there, are, there are plenty of things you can do with it. But just the fact that that one importer is selling that much, I just think it's quite interesting. I want to buy DRC with my airline miles. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? <laughs> but then in, in terms of the kind of more kind of day-to-day, -day, yeah, the duopoly is with the two different retailers. That tends to be on the more kind of entry to mid-level side of things. You'll see a lot of wines in there for kind of sub 100 Hong Kong dollars. So kind of seven, eight, nine US dollars a bottle retail. A lot of that tends to be kind of the, you know, the big major brands. And then there's quite a lot of OEM as well that come into to the Hong Kong retailers. And those are wine retailers or grocery stores? No, they're grocery stores. So there's there's no distinction here. And because it's a duopoly, they are, should we say, they're not incentivized to make it a consumer experience. And so it's a very different supermarket experience to what you might get in kind of Europe or, or the States. It's quite messy. It's quite indistinct. A lot of where the kind of how everything's set up. And that's the same in the wine section as well. I mean, to be fair, there yeah. are some very premium supermarkets as well where that's not the case, but your average supermarket in Hong Kong is, it'd be quite hard to find the, the kind of wines that you might be looking for. But to be precise about it, I mean, you have two groups that are that dominate the off-trade retail environment in Hong Kong, Welcome and Park and Shop. Watson's Wine Cellars is part of one of them and Marketplace. I mean, so they're, they're, they have premium versions and, and obviously, Watson's Wine Cellar is a wine specialist retailer. But ultimately, they're all part of those two big retail operations. You have independent wine vendors and wine shops. And you know there's a lot of other stuff going on, right? But predominantly, the retail environment is those two big operators. The supermarket side of it is, is Welcome and Park and Shop are the two 
two big players. And that's where you see your Oyster Bay and your Casiero del Diablo and your Rawson's Retreat and Mouton Kide and Yellowtail and all that kind of stuff going out. In terms of the fine wine section, what are the nature of those stores? You, you mentioned the growth of those post-2008. Are those mostly independent? Are they international transplants? What's the mix there? Yeah, there's a real mix there. I think a lot of the major importers will have their own kind of fine wine specialist retailer, which will probably have a different name to to the import company, but they will have that as a kind of shop window for their for their wines. There's many like that. And then you have a few independent retailers. And then you'll obviously have your kind of British wine merchants and 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 those as well. Yeah, it's important to recognize for your listeners in the US, you don't have a three-tier system. The regulatory environment is very liberal, right? So a restaurant can import directly. An importer can sell directly to a consumer and everything in between. So you have quite, it's a, it's a very democratic wine market in Hong Kong. Anybody can do whatever they want to do. It's, it's, quite, it's quite wide open in that sense. So there's nothing stopping an importer from bringing in fine Napa Valley Cabernet and selling directly to their private clients. So as Polly is saying, those guys typically all have some sort of private client business whether they have a store or not, and, and they'll cultivate their, their network of private clients with the brands that they're importing. And then you have retailers that can import directly. And to your question, I mean, you've, you've definitely got guys from the UK that have set up in, in Hong Kong, Corny and Barrow, Berry Brothers and Rudd, Sotheby's, like you have all of those guys are there with a physical presence. You got guys like Enoteca out of Japan, great retail business and, and, and wine business out of Japan that's, that is set up quite nicely in, in Hong Kong as well. We say it's a duopoly, but that's just because of the size and weight of those two guys. They're, they're sort of the two 800-pound gorillas. But there's actually quite a dynamic sub-market, I would say, or, or alternative market to them in fine wines, in trading, in private client business, selling to collectors. There's quite a lot of activity there as well. So we were curious on uh, in, in the context of uh, marketing and, and awareness and ordering. As we talked about in the mainland China, there's a whole bunch of like influencers and social platforms making it super easy to like talk about a wine and get a referral feed if that wine was bought by someone. Is there something similar in the Hong Kong market or is it just a totally different setup? It's completely different here. We obviously operate the kind of more Western media in the sense that Instagram is quite large here in Hong Kong, Facebook. So Doyen, the, the TikTok that I'm sure Ian and Nicole will have spoken about in China is, is actually illegal here in Hong Kong. So that you can't even access. So it is slightly more traditional market in that respect from the marketing side of things. When we're working with the importers and with the and with the retailers, we tend to focus on kind of Instagram advertising. There's definitely a bit more of the kind of trendy bartender and kind of trade influencer that's becoming more popular that you see a lot of people are kind of making on the kind of smellier side of things. But it's it's very different from mainland in that kind of KOL, KOC industry. It, it's just it just hasn't it hasn't taken off here in the same way. Are there other influencers in Hong Kong like wine media? I know some of the wine critics like James Suckling live there or merchants or who, who are the wine influencers in Hong Kong? Yeah, I mean, look, James Suckling's invested a lot in Hong Kong. He obviously has his amazing wine club and there's, there's no doubt that his kind of rating system is very well recognized here. So I think that is absolutely should be acknowledged, particularly in the trade. There's a lot of the kind of great wines of the world events that have gone on here. And actually, he's managed to keep them going during the pandemic as well in a slightly 
different format, unlike a lot of other events. It's one of the few things that's continued to go on. Then in terms of other influences, I think actually it's the international wine critics that people listen to here. It's your chances, it's your wine spectator, it's your advocate. That, that's what we always encourage our brands who are, who are looking to kind of have an influence in the, in the Hong Kong market. That, that's what people pay attention to rather than the kind of more local influences. The last time I was in Hong Kong was pre-pandemic, I think in the fall of 2019. And I walked into a grocery store in the bottom of a massive building. And there was a little wine section like in the middle. And I think there were like very high in Bordeaux, if not first gross there. Are those fake wines or are they like real wines? And how big is the fake wine market in Hong Kong? First of all, I would imagine that perhaps the place that you're wandering into was probably on Hong Kong Island in a relatively nice kind of international business building. Is that fair yeah. to say? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that that is quite often the case. That you do get these kind of real flagship stores in the bottom of business hubs in Hong Kong. So that's really usual. So no, I would say that that's absolutely not fake wine. That is, they they know who they're marketing to there. There are, there are lots of, um, you know, wealthy finances here in Hong Kong. And Hong Kong is a city of convenience. It's one of the reasons that e-commerce has never really kind of kicked off here because... Everything is you can kind of buy just by walking out your door on your way to the office. Like that's how everything's been set up here. It's that you can at your lunch break or your PA or or whatever, how you're set up can literally pop down to the bottom of your building and get your wine for your dinner for that evening rather than kind of having to do the kind of ordering online. No, it's absolutely, it's absolutely not fake what what you were seeing there. The fake wine market in Hong Kong, now that, (laughs) yeah, I I can't speak to any numbers, but I would be very surprised if there's, if if there's not a little bit going in here, but obviously because of the kind of ease of access, and as Ian described it, the democratic kind of wine market, I, I suspect it's significantly more legitimate here than there is in other countries in the region. I was wondering if there's any, like, given the volume of wine that goes through, if there was any of the refilling of bottles happening or anything like that in terms of counterfeits that, that would maybe get exported, not necessarily for domestic consumption. It's a quite a controversial subject, and, and it, it's one where, you know, it's very difficult to get precise about, you know, numbers and what's really going on. We've all seen the, the crazy bottles of stuff in mainland China you know, that, that is clearly not even an attempt at a good counterfeit. It's just it's just playing on the iconography and, a, and an attempt at kind of, you know, perverting the name of Chateau Lafitte or Petrus or Cheval Blanc or, you know, or, or Romane Conti. I mean, some of this stuff is really hilarious what you see. It's not funny when it becomes a problem for the brand, obviously. But then the, the question of genuine, really hard to detect counterfeit of the kind that, you know, have been in the news with with guys who've gone to jail for doing it. It's very difficult to be precise about that. And I I wouldn't want to wade into that in terms of trying to claim numbers or we see much more of a problem in China, in mainland China, with lookalikes and knockoffs than we do, I think, with with genuine, outright, sophisticated attempts at, at full on counterfeit. Now, I'm I'm speculating there. That's just my opinion. But what I tend to see is attempts by a very unscrupulous individual or company to try to play on again to, like like Benfolds I don't know if you remember this one but there was a there was a whole enterprise at one point where basically they had added a little loop to the bottom of the P of Penfolds and made it into a B and so the brand was Benfolds and it looked <laughs> exactly like Penfolds and they were exhibiting at trade shows 
they were actually exhibiting the, the brand at, at a trade show that I that was at. I've got pictures of. That's something we see much more of, uh, of just violation of intellectual property. And you're basically, what they're engaging in is ripping off gullible consumers who just can't really tell the difference in the foreign names. So that, that I think, is, is in the mainland what we see a lot more of. In Hong Kong, the extent to which there is refilling of bottles or genuine sort of Rudy Kernioan style, very hard to put a finger on that, to be honest. Well, that is a very informative overview of the Hong Kong market. We greatly appreciate it. We do want to end on a personal note. And Ian, we got your answer with the last interview, but we wanted to take a chance to ask Polly, what was the most memorable wine you've had over the last year? I'm sure you've had many given the lockdown uh, situation there. And who did you drink it with? Yeah, I was thinking about this. And so I obviously with the lockdown situation, I wasn't able to go back to the UK for nearly two and a half years. And when I did, I was actually taking back my, my firstborn son who hadn't met any of his grandparents or anything for the first time. And so in March this year, we went back and so obviously saw my parents and everything. And we had a big family get together. And so obviously I had to take a special bottle of wine for that. And I actually took a bottle of amazing Franchetti wine, Tenuto di Trinora, which was just outstanding. And it was a really special moment. And I'm not sure I'll ever emulate that moment again. Well, I want to thank you both for your time and uh, making this work despite uh, VPN issues and dogs and echoes and construction and all all the setup. But we really appreciate you guys spending the time to get us uh, dialed in on the Hong Kong market. Yeah, happy to do it anytime. Awesome. Well, hopefully we get to have a glass of wine in person at some point, whether you guys would come to San Francisco or we make it out to Hong Kong. Wow, that would be great. I'm, I'm definitely up for coming to San Francisco. Don't forget to support the show at xchateau.com or patreon.com slash xchateau. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, Shame. cheers. Cheers.